Hello and welcome to series eight, episode two of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. Thank you so much for listening. I'm very excited to be sharing this episode with you. Before we get into that, I want to thank so many of you that got in touch after last week's episode with Liv Hewson, star of Yellow Jackets. If you haven't listened to that yet, I highly recommend it. I loved that conversation and it seemed that loads and loads of you did as well. Today, I've got another really exciting one to share with you, Tig Notaro, who is a stand-up comedian who I'm sure you'll be aware of. I have been a massive fan of hers for years. And I think you'll probably be able to tell that I was quite nervous during this interview, which actually doesn't happen that much. But I think a fellow stand-up and someone that I uh, that I really look up to, I think you can probably tell that for certainly the first 10 minutes of the conversation, I was feeling very nervous. But um, hopefully as the conversation wore on, I sounded more like me, hopefully. But yeah, you'll, you'll get to listen to that in just a minute. Now, as ever, thank you to all of you that have got in touch with me. As always, I will share a couple of emails before I get into the conversation. And here is a lovely one to start with. Dear Susie, I'm late to your podcast, which seems to be a theme in my life. At 34, I also feel that I'm late to coming out. I've composed this email in my head so many times whilst listening to your podcast. And now that I'm actually trying to write it, my mind is a mess. I think all my life I've known that I'm not straight, wanting to kiss female friends in high school, only having sex dreams about women, or my general obsession with boobs, I think I just push those feelings to one side. I had the talk with my mother many times where she assured me it was okay if I was gay, which I always vehemently denied. During one of the many lockdowns here, a kind doctor worried that I seemed depressed and booked me in with a psychologist. It was here that I was finally able to whisper that I'm bisexual and I began my journey to accept and open up about my sexuality and believe that I'm worthy of love. I've never been in a proper relationship and outside of drunken kisses with my friends, I've never kissed a woman. I feel so left behind that I've missed out on so much of my life. I'm not even sure that I'm attracted to men or if it's just the compulsory heterosexuality that I feel. I also think I have a lot of internalized biphobia that I really need to overcome. We're all a work in progress, hey? Listening to other people's stories made me feel less alone. Shock, horror. I'm not a unique, special butterfly who is the only person to come out in their 30s. I'm not sure what the point of this email has been, but it has been therapeutic to put my thoughts on paper. I hope this doesn't mean I have to pay you $200 for the session, though. <laughs> no, you don't, I promise. Uh, thank you for sharing yours and your guest's story. I think this podcast is so important. And that is from Olivia, who has told me it is okay to use her name. You can't get to the party too late. The party's always happening. It doesn't matter. I think that the moment of realisation or even acceptance can be different for everyone. And I think, you know, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you'll know, I think we've mentioned it before, but Jess Foster Q's episode, my dear friend Jess, is a great example of of, of that, of, of working out things about yourself later in life or changing how you feel about things. And I'm really pleased that this podcast has been therapeutic for you and has been helpful to you that really means a lot to me okay let's have another one dear Susie I'm extremely late to the party another person late to the party and as a not podcasty kind of person I've only started listening over the last couple of days I absolutely adore you as a host every episode I've listened to has felt so genuine and warm and I can only imagine how it must feel for your guests to be able to be so relaxed and so open and have a wonderful safe space to share their stories I'm writing this off the back of hearing your interview with Mae Martin, who is someone I have admired and loved since I first saw them on telly, and even more so since Taskmaster, which I think you'd be incredible on. Listen, I'd love to do it. And I'm finding it difficult to keep the tears in. 
hearing stories of someone who's battled with gender identity and now I'm finding it difficult to keep the tears in. Hearing stories from someone who's battled with gender identity and how one goes about addressing that feels so close to home for me. I'm non-binary, or at least I think I am. I've not exactly hit the clarity stage yet and I find it difficult not being androgynous. So never having that question over what gender I was assigned at birth. I'm only out to a handful of people I know in real life and to one relative. I'm still comfortable enough being seen as and referred to as male. And I don't know, I wish it was different. I spent a day in the Edinburgh Fringe this year and wore my progress flag and my pride flag pins for the first time. And while I know they were noticed, I never felt out of place. It was truly one of the best days of my life. Something May said in their interview about parental acceptance really struck a chord with me as well. Whenever my dad was asked if I had a girlfriend, the answer was always, I don't know if he has a girlfriend, a boyfriend or a pet goat, but when he brings them round, I'll make him a cup of tea, which was so big for me growing up. I was advertently and not maliciously outed by an LGBTQIA plus cousin. So now my dad knows that I'm part of the alphabet mafia, but nothing specific. His response always when someone close to him comes out is without words. He just buys them a pair of rainbow laces and wears his own with pride too. I feel like I'm rambling on for far too long, but as I say, you create such a presence of warmth and a welcoming safe place and acceptance and have whenever I've seen you on TV. So again, thank you. Lots of queer love. Now, I'm not going to share your name because you said you went out to everyone and maybe you don't want me to do that. So I'm going to decide not to do that. But thank you so much for the kind things that you've said about the podcast. May's episode is brilliant and uh, I highly recommend you listen to it if you haven't yet. And your dad sounds amazing. Can I just say, your dad sounds awesome. What a great guy. But I'm so pleased that the podcast has uh, has felt that to you. And that's exactly what I hoped to do with this podcast. So that really means a lot to me. Okay, let's get on with today's conversation with the brilliant Tig Notaro. Enjoy my slightly nervous energy for the first 10 minutes. I feel slightly embarrassed about it now, but hey-ho, what can you do? Uh, here it is, my chat with Tig Notaro. Okay, I'm going to get this out of the way. Early doors. I am a massive fan of today's guest. Tig Notaro is a Grammy and Emmy-nominated comedian, actor and writer, and has been one of my favourite stand-ups for the best part of a decade. I became aware of her when her special, Live, a set she performed in a comedy club shortly after finding out she had cancer, went viral. I felt like every stand-up I knew downloaded and watched it immediately. I was utterly blown away by it. Raw, powerful, honest and really funny. She's had a number of brilliant specials since then and you might have seen her on loads of shows including Transparent, The Sarah Silverman Show, Star Trek Discovery and her own shows One Mississippi and Tig, The Morning Shows, Stephen Colbert and Conan to name a few. She also has a brilliant book, I'm Just a Person, My Year of Death, Cancer and Epiphany, which I highly recommend. She's also just started a podcast, well, relatively recently, with Fortune Famester and May Martin called Handsome. So have a listen to that as well. She's currently touring Europe and I'm delighted to say she has taken the time to chat to me today. Hello, Tig. Thanks for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. How are you? I um I've been in Amsterdam for two days and I'm just now starting to kind of feel like Amsterdam. Did you come straight from the States? I did. And um yesterday I woke up at two in the morning and finished my day <laughs> with just having gotten up at two in the morning. So Oof. Yeah. But all is fine. Have you been, I know this is the first bit of your European tour, but have you been touring for a while now, like on the road? This particular tour? 
Mm-hmm. I have been doing, I, I feel like it's now five years because <laughs> of the uh, pandemic. I started right, right before. Oh, wow. I think I had been doing this material on the road in the States for yeah two years, maybe a year and a half. I don't know. And then the pandemic, of course, I was home for a couple of years and then I got back out and have been touring and then the strike the writers and actors strike happened and then i was supposed to tape my next special in i think it was the beginning of summer Mm -hmm. and then just to be united with everyone i moved it to november 4th so i had to add more dates in between the summer and november just to keep myself in in it yeah so it's just i'm excited for november 4th to tape my special and just go home and be done are you the kind of stand-up that once it's taped you're like that's done i never say that stuff again i'm i'm done with it um with everything i would say the majority of it just because i'm excited to start new things Mm -hmm. but i also uh, I always think about how, well, I'm a, you, you're familiar with Maria Bamford, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she's, yeah, she's by far one of my favorites. I think if I was ever at a show and Maria Bamford repeated one of my favorite jokes, I would not be upset. Yeah. And, and I have some material that I revisit when touring or if somebody asks me to do it, sometimes I'll do but it's normally that I'm doing my best because I can barely remember material that I've already done yeah. and moved on from. So, but I don't have a hard, fast rule, but I feel like I just typically have an ongoing list of material. That's an exciting play. What, what I always find once you finish a tour, I'm just finishing a tour as well at the moment. Um, but the, the freedom afterwards is quite liberating to be like, oh God, I haven't got to perfect this fucking bit so that it looks good on a video. Right, right. How do you tend to put a show together? Do you just sort of do like, you know, drop in at comedy clubs and try out tens and things like that? I used to do that more. Uh, I would say now I have my home club uh, Largo in Los Angeles and then you called Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles. And I would say those are the places that I mainly go to and... I'll probably do an hour, hour and a half when I'm in Los Angeles and just, you know, I'll have a list of things that say, yeah, this isn't actually my material, but like a hotel key or uh, socks or whatever it is. All oh, the things that, that are in your hotel room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> whatever is yeah. uh, going to jog my memory to remember to tell whatever story or idea that I had. And then I just work it out in real time in front Mm -hmm. of the audience. But I also, you know, I'm married and I have two seven-year-olds. And so when I'm home, I typically like to be home, but um, it's nice that I can do shows after my kids go to bed. Yeah. So um, I don't do it like I used to do it uh, before uh, where I was five to seven nights a week going club to club. I just don't do it. Uh, what year did you start? Because obviously, as I mentioned in the intro, like I became aware of you uh, when the special live went like viral. It's actually called Live. 
Oh, I'm so sorry. No, I named it that so people would so people would do that. Do that uh, because you know that's a typical name for a, an album is yeah is, is the person course. or the band's name and then live. Yeah. But because I was so ill at the time, I thought it would be good to call it Live. But um, I have been doing stand up, I think, since '96. Oh wow! Gosh, almost 28 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a long old time because you were before that special came out. I know that you were already sort of having like a real year of like working loads and doing loads of stuff. So I was wondering if we could go like back even further, right to the beginning kind of thing. Like you, I know that you, you were born in Mississippi and then you grew up in Texas. Mm -hmm. Now we've got loads of listeners well, from all over the world, actually, but lots of European listeners. What would that have looked like at that point in what, like the 70s? What was, what did Texas feel like at that point when you were sort of a, a young person there? I mean, I met some of my closest friends of my life there mm -hmm. and uh, they're still my closest friends. It was just a lot of outside playing as a kid. Mm -hmm. It also felt pretty inconsistent. My, my life, you know, my stepfather traveled a lot and my mother partied a lot and my father wasn't in my life consistently at all. So it was a real mix of probably a typical childhood and then also uh, what the hell's going on this in my life but i mean texas in the 70s i don't really mm. know what was going on in texas in the 70s i didn't know what was going on yeah you know i was just uh a really young kid were you the kind of kid to be like were you funny as a kid were you trying to be funny yeah it was very much my go-to i was i was the class clown mm -hmm. and my mother was a very funny gregarious wild person and mm -hmm. um she influenced me but i had a different delivery and style to my comedy i was way way drier yeah and my stepfather he was funny too he was just a very buttoned up dry uh funny and um but yeah i was i was no doubt in trouble making jokes doing all sorts of things pranks and yeah i feel like school was my um <laughs> my college for becoming right. a, a stand-up your apprenticeship yeah and when you were being that sort of funny person maybe when you were in high school how aware of your sexuality were you did you feel sort of other for want of a better word yeah, I guess I felt different than a lot of my friends, but then some of those friends actually ended up <laughs> dating women. But uh, I, I felt like I was definitely different than the majority of people in my school, and I didn't know what it was. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't aware of my sexuality at all, probably until I was. 19. So would it have just been like a, huh, I guess, I guess I'm just a bit different to other people. Yeah, but also to myself, right. I guess, because I couldn't figure out why I was different to other people. So I just felt just different in, mm -hmm. in general. And then I thought, well, I'm, I, I thought of myself as a tomboy. I thought of myself as a, 
a funny person. I was, I played sports. I was an artist. I, uh, I didn't seem to have exactly the same interests as, as some of the other girls um, that I was around or friends with, but I was like, well, I guess I'm just different. <laughs> and do you think that that was because of a sort of lack of representation of people like us? Is it because you didn't see anyone? Oh, it had to had to have been. But then when I was in high school, the vice principal of my school, she took a liking to me and expressed care and concern for what I was up to. And, and I wasn't just in trouble when I would see her. It was that she, she just became kind of a guide in my life. And then I realized, oh, she's gay. Right. (laughs) My mother said it to me. My mother said, do you think, do you think she's gay? And I said, I don't know. I don't think so. Like I, it never had crossed my mind. Right. And my mother said, I think she is. And I I thought, wow, that's interesting. And now I know she is and I'm still in touch with her. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. When I came, I came out to her and then she came out to me. I let her know. That's nice. I had a teacher like that. I've never found out, but I'm pretty sure uh-huh. one, of my, one of my science teachers was gay. That or she was just a, a straight woman that loved trousers with lots of pockets. Smart woman. <laughs> Listen, who doesn't need a pocket, right? But I used to follow her around mm-hmm. and I think she knew yeah. we would chat and she would be like, okay, goodbye, Susie. And I'd be like, okay, bye. Yeah. I, just, I just liked being sort of somewhere, even though I didn't really have the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really know the thing. Yeah. But I was like, I want to stand near you. Yes. I know that you worked in the music industry mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. Um, and then at what point were you like, ah, oh, I'm going to take this t- to comedy? Well, I was living in uh, Denver with the childhood friend. I had a couple of childhood friends that I was very close to that I had talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And they were moving to Los Angeles to work in TV and film. And I had gone through a breakup in Denver and i thought well since that's over uh, maybe i'll just come with you and so i packed up my things and threw them in the truck and went to los angeles with them with the intention of returning to colorado in like six months after the smoke cleared and um uh, but once i got to la i saw all of the opportunity to do stand-up at um clubs and bars and coffee shops and everywhere i just started trying stand-up because it had always been the thing that i dreamed of doing but i never imagined i would actually try who were the stand-ups that you were watching when you were growing up to be sort of inspired by um i loved uh stephen wright and steve martin and mm-hmm. ellen and rosie o'donnell joan rivers richard pryor those were the main ones but i i watched everything i could get my hands on and what was it like well, two questions really what was it like as a, a woman in that point in the 90s in la doing stand-up but what was it like as, as a gay woman well the first time i did stand up 
was at a gay uh, coffee shop. And so it was very inclusive. And um, yeah, I just, I personally didn't notice any sort of um, issues or trouble with getting on stage anywhere, but, you know, it might have just been that because it's very weird to say that being gay, I know some people felt like being gay held them back, whereas I felt like being gay helped me. I felt, uh, because when I would hear from straight women that they felt like they couldn't get stage time, I wasn't really experiencing that. And if I was experiencing it, I didn't really know I was experiencing it. I just didn't even Mm. think about it. I just thought, oh, they don't want me on this show and then I'll move on to the next one and then I get on the next show or I, uh, or I don't fit in this lineup or I, I don't know. I just, I really didn't think about it. I guess that there was, uh, because of, I guess people like having seen Ellen and Rosie O'Donnell, you sort of knew it was possible Mm -hmm. for there to be such successful women. But I think I've found that quite often there's, it's people would like to have someone different on the bill Uh to just be like, oh, there's another option. I guess that's, uh, I've I've, I've found that as as well. And so there was obviously, you know, well, way more than a decade of you sort of gigging around, sort of finding your voice. Mm -hmm. Was that something that came to you quite naturally? The sort of, you've obviously, I mean, you know your style, but for listeners, like, you know, you're quite slow, you're quite measured, you're very, I don't know how much you like the word deadpan, I know some people don't like it, but there's a a measuredness to to you on stage. Was that something that took a while to find or were you naturally that person? I think I'm naturally that person, but I'm also, I think like most people, different in different scenarios. And mm-hmm. it's just all based on my comfort level with mm-hmm. when, whether I'm one-on-one with somebody or in a small group or on stage. But I don't think it's a huge stretch from my typical delivery, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I, I, I started out much slower when I was first starting out. Really? Well, yeah, like I used to be very just set up punchline, set up punchline, mm-hmm. very dry and slow. Whereas now I think I'm more conversational and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's I've, as we mentioned, I've been doing it almost 30 years. So it's, it's the bones are still there of what originally yeah. uh, started on stage, but I, I just, and more conversational and i would mm-hmm. say not as slow and <laughs> i'm still slow and dry but yeah i think that's really interesting because i think it's very i think being slow on stage is really brave mm. and so it's interesting that you were always sort of no this is what i do that's impressive well I think it's just like doing comedy anyway. It's, you know, when people say, oh my gosh, it's so brave or that's a scary public speaking or, or comedy. But, you know, when it's what you are naturally drawn to or what your strength is, it doesn't feel brave at all. It just mm-hmm. feels like 
this is what I do. And I always think mm-hmm. it, you know, if somebody said, you know, you have to, the, the doctor passed out, we need you to come in here and finish the surgery. If I did that, that would be tremendously brave. Um, yes. But if I'm going on stage telling you something crazy my kid said, it doesn't feel even remotely brave. Yeah. No, I, I get what you mean. Yeah. I get what you mean. So I know that you've said before in interviews and also fr- from reading and watching a lot of your work that you, after your special live, which I will never get wrong again, <laughs> came out that you, is it fair to say that you sort of became more honest on stage and you were sort of more up for sharing more of yourself? Yeah, definitely. I think it just became part of the mix of what I was going to do on stage. It was a a confusing time because after being really sick and losing my mother and my girlfriend and all of that, I, and sharing all of my turmoil and making it, you know, making light of it uh, on stage, I, I was getting so much attention for that, that I, I was kind of confused, like what, what my style was, what I wanted to say beyond that show that I did, the, the live show. Um, Mm -hmm. So it took me, I don't know, a year or two or something, I can't remember, but to really realize that, yeah, I love that I was able to share and make jokes and tell stories about that hard time in my life. But I also really love utter nonsense Mm -hmm. uh, that's not dark, that's not truth telling, that's just stupid. I just Mm -hmm. love ridiculousness. Yeah. So it's been a process of, it's like, like I was saying how I would just do set up punchline, very dry in the early days. Now I'm more conversational. So it's like, you know, as you go along in life, you just gather more and more things, elements, personality traits, whatever the, whatever way that you shift or change that you bring along with you. It's, it's similar. I think what I went through on stage as a comedian, I just, allowed myself to grow and try out new things that I felt like doing and not, you know, there's so many comedians that once they have their stage persona or their way that they do things, they, they stay with that. And that is the Mm -hmm. end of the story. And then they paint themselves into a corner. And I had moments where I would struggle and think, well, I want to try something different or this isn't really my, you know, mm-hmm. my style anymore. Or there's something else that maybe I'll do. And I, I would struggle in my head and heart over it. And then I would think if a friend of mine and a fellow comedian said, Hey, Tig, what do you think? I was thinking of trying this. It's not really my typical style. Should I do it? I would never say, no, don't try anything new, Mm. you know? Yeah. I would never tell anyone that. So why am I telling myself that? And so I just began to, you know, allow myself to shift and 
and, and change. And then you were sort of even more open in the, the show for Netflix, TIG, which is about your, you and your wife trying to get pregnant. I mean, that really was wide open uh, for the world to mm-hmm. see. How much did you sort of have to consider how much you were going to share about that journey? Well, I didn't know the journey I was on. Right, of course. And yeah, of so course. that's the crazy thing about a documentary is once you've seen the movie, you kind of forget just as you don't know what your life is going to be in the next year. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that movie was going to be. I honestly thought because I had gotten out of the hospital and I had, I felt like I was on the mend in life. It, I really, this is crazy to say, but I really thought <laughs> there was nothing else that could go wrong in my life. And so when I was approached about doing this documentary about my life, I thought, sure, yeah, you can film my victory lap. Right. And then as it was going on and things were unfolding, I was realizing, oh, oh no, this is life. It's, it's not just smooth sailing from here. And so the movie was capturing there were five main, I think five main storylines. It was, I was yeah. falling in love. I was mm-hmm. getting back on stage as a comedian. Uh, I was trying to have a child. Um, I, uh, I can't even remember. There were so many things going on mm-hmm. and none of them were easy <laughs> to, yeah. to say the least. So I didn't know what was coming. And as things were unfolding, I remember thinking, okay, I'm already nearly a year into filming this movie, you know, when I was trying to have the child and, um, and I don't know why after everything that had happened to me that I was still so, uh, I was thinking so positively about everything. And then again, it never dawned on me that that anything could go awry. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. <laughs> um, but I, I somehow didn't account for the fact that the camera was going to be catching me in these moments. But when it did, I just thought, okay, I've got to just let this happen. Because if I'm going to put out a documentary, which I've already agreed to do, and put so much time and effort in, then there's no point in releasing a movie that doesn't have any depth to it because uh, I mean, I love documentaries and that's, that's the kind you want to see is, is all the twists and turns that you don't expect. Yeah, absolutely. Did it feel exposing when it came out? Oh my gosh. Yes. And, yeah. and, and also the film, it wasn't quite what it is now and what came out it there was a lot of back and forth and struggle with the the story because right i think they did ultimately an excellent job but there were just so many stories to manage and and um and so there were different iterations of the film that that didn't see the light of day that Mm. i just thought well this this isn't this isn't right and so we continued to work on it 
I mean, after you share like that kind of story with the world, now on stage, you must be like, oh, fuck, I'll tell you anything. <laughs> it must be, it must feel, I don't know, quite liberating. Is that It is fair? It is. Yeah, it's liberating, but it's also, uh, it was a lesson of as much as I share, I don't share everything. Of course. And so that's the that's the balance and the lesson of okay it feels really nice to be open and honest and as authentic as possible but you know getting married having kids Mm -hmm. and even though i'm now in remission i've still had a real roller coaster of um, health issues over the past decade and so there's things that i share and things i don't share and that was just the Yeah, it was it was a good lesson to learn because, Mm. you know, people being as honest and open as I have been on stage, people assume they're getting all of the information and all of the story of my life. But but you're not. You got to save some. (laughs) I do. Do you go to your your partner? Do you go to Stephanie and say, is this like, do you have like a a person that you check with or a barometer for yourself to go, oh no, that's far too much. Or do you just know it instinctively? I know some instinctively, but um, before I was with Stephanie, I didn't really think about anybody in that way. Mm -hmm. I just had my material and shared it and then went home. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had girlfriends, of course, but I I just, um, I don't know. I, I. I just wasn't as committed to the relationship. And I, I think yeah. after being with Stephanie, she started to say things like, which I appreciate uh, at now. And at the time I was like, wait, what? You know, cause mm-hmm. she would say, oh, I don't know if you should talk about that or, oh, that's, that's my thing. Or I don't think our kids, you know that they don't they're not old enough to agree to that or yeah and and i was like oh right she's she's right and and i know a lot of yeah. people will say this is my better half or my spouse is smart, smarter than me but oh my god is stephanie smarter than <laughs> me it is alarming and i i i never get over it ever that's nice yeah it's true it's really nice it's really it's, true yeah, but it's 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 lovely my wife and I have a child as well mm. and Alice often says to me she's like I don't know I don't know if she'll thank you for that in years to come and I'm like okay <laughs> okay I won't do that bit okay I think it's fun she's like I think that's more sort of funny for our friends yeah and I'm like okay and that's yeah. it's good to have a person that's uh that 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 cares yeah in a different way how old is your, your child uh, she is three. Oh, nice. She's three. So we're in the midst of, you know, a lot of feelings. I want a feminist, but not this quick. Yeah. She's got, <laughs> she's big emotions. That's uh, great. But, I mean, the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. That's amazing. But, you know, it's a it's a juggle, isn't it, being a parent that's touring? Yes, it it really is. And then also, you know, on this tour, I've probably done over a hundred shows and um, it'll be way more than that after I finish in November, but I'm home the rest of the time. And, yeah. and, and there are times when I'm filming TV or, or movies, but in general, when I'm home, I'm, I'm home and then I'll go into my office and record my podcast. Yeah. Um, but 
and I also have the real luxury of Stephanie being just, I mean, she works and is busy too, but we always marvel over how somehow we have a balance. I mean, her father, her father lives in Los Angeles and is our babysitter or whatever you want to nanny. Mm -hmm. That's who hangs out with our sons. I don't know if I mentioned there's seven. Mm -hmm. So they're usually at school or we go to their friends' houses or they're home with us or their grandfather. And, Mm -hmm. and they have a very, very consistent schedule in life yeah and they're 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 both just thriving and happy and hilarious and um as you said hilarious as i was asking <laughs> yeah well i would say our son finn is hilarious in his own way of his personality he's kind of like a type a he mm-hmm. he's <laughs> his whole life he's been very he likes to check sports stats he he right. he lives by the clock and he he tells his brother you know it's time we need to go up it's time for bed or you know he's <laughs> you know or like max hurry we're we're late for school we gotta get going and um and so he's just so funny in that way where we cannot believe what a little man he is yeah and then <laughs> our son max I always say he was born 60 years old. Um, If you think I'm dry, (laughs) he is, he loves words. He loves stories. He loves songs. He loves Bob Dylan. He loves to know what the, what is Bob Dylan talking about? What is the story of this song? He loves jokes. He loves puns. We were in Colorado last October and I was driving and the two of them were in the back seat and Stephanie and I are up front and I said, Oh my God, there's a, there's a pumpkin in the road. Somebody had smashed a pumpkin and Max sitting in his little car seat. So dry. He said, um, you mean, Oh my gourd. (laughs) He said, that's good. I know. He said, pumpkins are gourds. Stephanie and I looked at each other and then I looked back at him and I said, what did you just say? And he said, you mean, oh my gourd, pumpkins are gourds. And I was like, this is hilarious. And then uh, this is the last thing I'll say about (laughs) if he's, if they're funny, but we have three cats and uh, it was me, Stephanie, Max, Finn, their grandfather and our three cats sitting on the couch watching a movie and and when Max was four, he got up and just said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to get the hell out of here. All these <laughs> damn cats. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. So we're, we're endlessly amused by them. I, I keep this ongoing document of everything, not everything they say, but God close to it goes for pages. Yeah. The other day I was walking her home from nursery. She was in her little stroller and I accidentally clipped the curb. Mm-hmm. And she had spent the week before with my mum, who sort of speaks in a very sort of British working class way. Uh-huh. And I clipped the road and my daughter turned around to me and went, all right, love, easy. <laughs> and I just said, like, oh, you've been you've, you've been with Nanny. You've been you've spent so much time with Nanny. Easy. Just hilarious. That um, is so funny. 
It's great, isn't it? Endlessly entertaining. Now, I'm well aware that you need to check out the hotel room, so I'm going to ask you one more question very quickly uh, and then we're done. It's the final question I ask always on this show because lots of people write in asking for advice, which I don't feel like I'm qualified to give, but I I like to ask my guests uh, if... If you could sort of reach out to someone that's maybe going through something that, you, that that has been similar to you, and I know, like, I don't want to go into your sort of health complications, and because I imagine that's all very stressful and awful to go into, obviously. But I'm sort of thinking of a version of you, maybe before you had sort of the success that you have now, maybe before you had, you know, the kind of relationship that you have now, which sounds incredible, and the family that you have now. If they were hoping to to get that at some point, but they were still in a point where it felt like they were. I don't know, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. If you could reach out to them and just give them a few words of encouragement, what would you say? Hmm. <laughs> well, I think that I always marvel when I'll be in conversation with Stephanie or anybody really and talking about hard times or what seems like wrong turns in life and those moments where the door is about to close and you got through the door of life, you know, in those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe I made it through that. Whether, even if it's not cancer or a deadly illness, it's just, uh, or even like, oh gosh, I'm so glad I made that decision. When my childhood friends were moving to Los, Los Angeles, I didn't know Stephanie and Max and Finn and hmm. <laughs> our life. I didn't know they were out there. But I'm, I'm always like, oh, gosh, I, I can't believe I made it through. I can't believe I got through that door before it shut. And yeah, and when I look at Stephanie and Max and Finn, I do. And, and I know people talk about this all the time, but all of the seemingly wrong and bad turns and decisions and hard times are leading you to that other side and to just have faith and to trust trust life and that even means that means all of the good and all of the bad you you just have to trust life but i think it also has to be very driven by earnest authentic connected decisions of your own and that is that's all you can do and that's all i've ever done and uh, but I, I, I mean, when, and a lot of what I've done has been huge leaps and, and that worked for me, but that's again, trusting life. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you, Tig. That was the brilliant Tig Nataro. Check out the podcast. And if you've got tickets to go and see them, I'm pretty sure it's all sold out. Have a brilliant time. I'll be back with you next week. Until then, take care. Bye. Bye.